It's a blessing to be with you tonight. I mean that. And it's a great honor to bring God's word to God's people, especially when I get to talk about his epic story of redemption, this plan of God to, to rescue people from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. It's a grand narrative of history, and it just excites me when I get to be a part of mobilizing the people of God to be a part of the mission of God. So I'm often asked when I'm traveling, are you on business or pleasure? And I just nod my head affirmatively. Because for the last 25 years, as Sean mentioned, I've been involved in missions mobilization, almost 10 years at a local church, and then the last 15 years with 1615. And so I'm just humbled to say my business is my pleasure. My pleasure is my business. And that can be true of every child of God because he invites every one of his children into the family business of making disciples of all nations. Whether you're employed in ministry or you're in the marketplace, it's all holy work, people. As God's kids, his sons and daughters, he invites us into the family business. Isn't that amazing? So if you have your Bibles, and this is a Calvary, and we do Bible study in Calvaries, as you probably know by now, pull out your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture that I just love. We're going to pick it up in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 12, and then we're going to unpack it together tonight and learn some lessons together. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us, in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? We're going to talk about that tonight. What does this mean? What was Pentecost all about? Well, it was a day exploding with historical significance. After all, this is the birthday of the New Testament church. Our heritage as a continuation of the New Testament churches through the ages can be traced back to here. But it was also a day filled with missionary significance. This church, born on this day, was unmistakably a missionary church. It was a church birthed in a global context. And I think it's clear as we look at Acts 2 that the church was made for missions. And once again, since all gospel churches that exist today are the product of a long and sacred history that began here in Acts 2, every church today should realize that they too are made for missions. I want to look at three ways tonight that the church here in Acts 2 reveals that God designed a church made for missions. The first thing I want to point out is that the church birthed here, and again, it's relevant today, was made for movement. 
It wasn't made to be stationary, to be a club. It was made to move. Remember what Jesus told his followers in the previous chapter. Acts chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. He said to them, wait in Jerusalem, tarry, until you receive the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. I love that Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as the promise of the Father. That God, a very God, would come to dwell in his people. So, verse 4 of chapter 1, and while they, excuse me, and while staying with them, he, Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard me, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Well, 10 days had passed since Jesus ascended, and it says, suddenly the Spirit descended upon them on this Pentecost morning in a new and powerful way, and folks, the world would never be the same. I want you to hang on, hang on to that word suddenly. We're not going to talk about it now, but we will pick it up again a little later in the message. Suddenly, we'll come back to that. So notice that the arrival of the Spirit was announced by three signs. First, a rushing wind that filled the entire house, it says, where they were sitting. So this wind comes into the house, this physical manifestation of the presence of God, and it's blowing through the house. Flames of fire that hovered over each one of their heads. And then thirdly, the ability to speak in unknown languages. So the Spirit's arrival was announced by these three signs. Now the sign of the tongues is the one that gets talked about the most. It gets the most press. But folks, the signs of the wind and fire are astonishing. And we have lessons to learn by studying them. So we're going to look at them right now. They reveal some very important things to us. They take us back to two Old Testament parallels where God moved into a new home. Okay? So following Moses' dedication of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, it says that Jehovah moved in. He moved in to his new house, and his presence was so tangible, so weighty, it says, that Moses could not enter the tent of meeting. The glory of God had descended upon the tabernacle. By, by the way, the word glory in the Hebrew, kabod, means weight or heaviness. So the heaviness of God, the weight of God is coming to rest upon the tabernacle and it is so thick and so tangible that Moses cannot enter. Exodus 40, verses 34 through 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory or the weight of God filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting Because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And as we read the story of God's people wandering through the wilderness, we see that God would accompany them on their journeys and he would show his presence by hovering over the tabernacle as a cloudy or fiery pillar. And we see something very similar. I mentioned two Old Testament parallels in Solomon's dedication of the temple. So now, it's not a mobile tent, a tent of meeting, a tabernacle. It is now stationary, God's holy city of Jerusalem. And the temple is built, and God is now going to visit his people in this temple. The mediating presence of God is going to visit his people. And similarly, as we see in Moses' account, God gives a housewarming gift 
And his present is his presence. And once again, his glory is manifest by this overwhelming cloud and by fire descending from heaven. I'm going to read two accounts of the dedication of the temple. First, 2 Chronicles 5, 13 and 14. It was the duty of the trumpeters to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, and this is their song, I love it, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the weight or the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. So they sing about his steadfast love, enduring forever his goodness, and God gives a housewarming present, his very presence in the temple. And now in 2 Chronicles 7, 1 through 3, so Solomon finishes his prayer of dedication and fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And we see this recurring theme again. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. This incredible housewarming presence, his very presence, and it is so thick, so weighty, so tangible that the priests cannot enter. And what do they do? They hit the deck. They bow down on the pavement and they give God, the glory, do his name. Now these signs, most notably the hovering flames, were now present at Pentecost. So now go back to Pentecost. We've looked at the two parallels. Let's look at the significance now for this chapter in Acts. So they are portraying folks in a powerful way that God had taken up residence in a new temple, the church the church of Jesus Christ. God had given a housewarming a gift, but no longer is he dwelling in a tent or in a building, but he's dwelling in his children. He's dwelling in his people. God's mediating presence would no longer dwell in a place, folks. The mediating presence of God, the very spirit of God would now dwell within his people. And worship of God would not be tied to a tent or a building or any single location or a city, but to a people. Verse 12 again. What does all this mean? What's going on here? That's a great question to ask after we look at Pentecost. These are some unusual things happening. They're out of the ordinary. So we should ask, what does this mean? Well, here's what I believe it means. The temple of God was being franchised and mobilized for the Great Commission. God had moved into his people so that his people could move out with his presence. You see, a new age had begun and Pentecost signified that. And rather than inviting the nations to come to Jerusalem and see, which by the way was the Old Testament pattern, because the nations would hear about God's hand and his mighty outstretched arm and they would come. Proselytes, these are Gentiles, nations that would hear and they would say, I want to learn more about this God that parted the Red Sea. I want to learn about this God who performed these wonders in delivering his people from Egypt. The stories would pass. They would hear about his hand, about his love for and protection of his people and about his glory. And they would say, I want to learn more. And so they would come to Jerusalem and see. In fact, when Solomon dedicated the temple that we just talked about, 
in 1 Kings 8. I want you to listen to his prayer of dedication. This is 1 Kings 8, 41 through 43, one of the longest recorded prayers in the Bible. It's actually much longer than those verses, but I'm going to pick it up right in those two, three, excuse me. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this house, here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Solomon knew that God had ordained that this holy city, this temple would be a beacon of light and stories would be told about God's greatness and the nations would come. And so he said, God, when the foreigner comes, do all that he says because we want the whole world to know and love and worship you as we do. But now something is shifting. No longer is it an invitation to the nations to come and see But the new temple, the church, has been commanded and empowered to go and tell. No longer is it a come and see message. Now, you should invite your friends to church. But you need to get out into the highways and the byways of this city and even to the ends of the earth. The message is not to the nations, come and see. It is to his people, go and tell. The birth of the church at Pentecost represented a new age. The come and see age had become the go and tell age. The church was made for movement. And Pentecost signified that. Second thing I want to draw out of the passage here is that the church was made for harvest. It was made to move, and it was made for harvest. Acts 2.1 says, when the day of Pentecost had come. So, once again, verse 12, what does this mean? And So, why did Jesus choose Pentecost as the day when he would pour out his spirit on his disciples? Well, I think at least one reason is that Pentecost was a feast of harvest. Think of Jewish Thanksgiving. We celebrate harvest at Thanksgiving, the bounty of God's goodness. This was the Jewish Thanksgiving. Listen to Exodus chapter 23, verse 16, speaking of the feast of Pentecost. You shall keep the feast of harvest, you could put Pentecost there, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering, another name for the feast of Pentecost, at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Don't miss this. There's some beautiful imagery right here. Jesus, by inaugurating through his spirit, his church on Pentecost was doing something that was significant. It was symbolic. What better way to foretell the ingathering of souls from across the world that would come about through his church by using this festival that celebrated harvest as the day of inauguration? And this extraordinary outpouring of the Spirit here, folks, it reveals something else to us. And I believe that it is this. The Spirit was given for witness and for world evangelization, for the harvesting or the ingathering of souls. Yes, to empower us. Yes, that we might walk in sanctification. But here we see that the Spirit was given for the primary purpose of harvesting souls, of reaping a harvest for the glory of God, and that is exactly what happened on this day. 3,000 people were harvested from death to life. 
Their sins were forgiven. They were given eternal life on the day of Pentecost. The feast of harvest on this day signifying harvest, physical harvest from the fields. Now God is reaping a spiritual harvest of souls. Again, I'm going to reinforce it. What does this mean? I think Jesus chose Pentecost as the day that he would pour out his spirit in this extraordinary way to show that the primary purpose of the gift of the Spirit was for the harvesting of souls for the glory of God. You see, I think it's unfortunate that Pentecostal power for many people has become more associated with speaking in tongues. That's part of it. But the harvest of world missions is kind of a PS, and yet here we see on the inauguration day that the Spirit of God was given for the sake of harvesting souls to bring attention to Jesus. The Spirit always points to Jesus. So friends, the church was made to harvest, not crops, but souls. And Pentecost signified that. And then the third point, the church was made to be multi-ethnic. Again, Pentecost signified this. The disciples were granted this supernatural ability to speak in unlearned tongues. And understand, this is not gibberish or merely a miracle of hearing. They were speaking in diverse languages. Again, those there were saying, we hear them speaking of the work of God in our own tongue. What is going on? What does it mean? Why diverse tongues? Because I believe it's a foreshadowing of the global, multicultural nature of the church. The church was birthed in a global context. The use of multiple languages signified in a vivid way the missionary purpose of God's church. It was made to move it was made for harvesting and it was made for harvesting people from all nations and this idea is further developed in verses 9 through 11 i'm going to read it again because it catalogs these various nationalities and it reveals something verse 9 parthians and medes elamites and residents of mesopotamia judea and cappadocia pontus and asia phrygia pamphylia Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So here we have listed these various nationalities that were present at this first Christian Pentecost. And if you do a little bit of geographical study here, what you'll find that these are nationalities from the north, south, east, and west. All of the nationalities that surrounded Jerusalem were there present. So here's what I believe Acts 2 shows us. Christianity isn't a Jewish thing. It's not a Hebrew thing. It's not a Greek thing. It's not an American thing, to put in our context. Folks, the gospel is for the whole world. It is for every language, every nation, every tribe, every tongue. Remember, when Jesus gave the Great Commission in Matthew 28, he commissioned us to make disciples of all the nations. He didn't commission us to make disciples, period. And, and no one should push back on that imperative. We should be making disciples of our neighbors at Starbucks, on the soccer field, in the workplace. We should be salt and light at all levels in our own culture. But the mandate Jesus gave was for the discipling of all nations. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. You see, it's neighbors and nations. But many churches, they've domesticated the Great Commission 
by leaving off the object. They stop at make disciples. But folks, it doesn't stop there. Jesus commanded us to disciple all nations, and this birthday of the New Testament church shows us God's heart for a multi-ethnic body. The very birthday of the church, he's drawing in the nations. I want to bring your attention to a, a short video that really unpacks this. In the beginning, God created everything. He created a world full of people to know him and to be known by him. This is the story of the Bible, God bringing people to himself. And when we read the Bible, we see how God went to great lengths to do this and how much God cares about people knowing him. You most likely already know this. And you probably live somewhere where people have a general understanding of this great love story between God and humanity. And if they don't know yet, there's probably somebody in town who can tell them. But did you also know that there are three billion people who will live and die without ever hearing this story? Not because they don't care, but because they don't have a choice. Nobody ever told them that once upon a time, God became a human just like them, so that he could teach them how to know their creator. 40% of the world doesn't know this, and they won't know this. Not unless something changes. Not unless someone goes to tell them. Jesus is our wonderful example. He left his natural home to come to us, and then he tells us to do the same thing. Because we love Jesus and care about the same things that he cares about, we care about this. That the whole world would know him. That every tongue, tribe, and people group would come and be able to worship him. So the question is, are we doing this? Going out into the world to bring the gospel to every tongue, tribe, and nation? Well, kind of. While churches do send people out, almost half the world still doesn't have any access to the gospel. But how is this possible? Aren't there people being sent? Well, yeah, there are about 400,000 people serving across the world today, but only 3% of them are actually going to the 40% who have never heard about Jesus. The other 97%, they're going to places that have already heard about Jesus. There's an imbalance. That imbalance leaves only one person for each 250,000 people who have never heard about Jesus. Put another way, we have a spirit-led calling to rethink our focus. When you look at how we use our resources, such as money, the picture doesn't look that much better. To be specific, Christians around the world are giving about 2% of their income to Christian causes. And less than 7% of that is going to cross-cultural workers. And of that cross-cultural giving, only 1 one-hundredth of that 0.1% is actually going to those working with the 3 billion people who don't know Jesus, have no church, or any Christian neighbors. The other 99% of all cross-cultural giving goes to the rest of the world that already has Christians, Bibles, and churches. Are you seeing the imbalance? Only 3% of our workers with only 1% of our cross-cultural finances are going to the 3 billion people who have never heard about Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves, are we okay with this? We want those 3 billion people to hear about the kingdom of God and how much God loves them. There are 17,000 ethno-linguistic groups in the world. People who share language, culture, and common history. 7,000 of them are considered unreached people groups. These are entire cultures who have never heard the amazing story of how Jesus loves them and came to save them. God has called us to pay attention to this. To love and care for the same things that He does. He put this desire on our heart. To see the unreached, reached with the amazing story of the love of God. We want to see lasting local church planning movements begin among these people groups that brings renewal and transformation among these cultures and societies. Why? Because God has moved our hearts to see the gospel transform whole societies among the unreached. We know this task is bigger than us. Many of the areas that are in need of the gospel are difficult and resistant places. It isn't something that can be accomplished overnight, but by the power of the Spirit, we endeavor to preach the gospel where Christ is not known so that God can be worshipped by all peoples. So the commission that Jesus gave was not only to win and to disciple individuals, but to reach all the different people groups in the world. 
to make steady headway in seeing that there are individuals, one, but in the context of every nation, every tribe, and every single tongue. And once again, we see this signified at Pentecost. And because of what Christ has revealed to us in Matthew 28, the goal of the Great Commission, folks, is not primarily to try and keep up with or gain the population growth rate. Now, that would be awesome. If every time there was a physical birth, we could see it offset with a spiritual new birth so that we could keep up with population growth. But that is not what he's called us to. He's called us to make steady headway in reaching more nations, more peoples. Yes, we win individuals, but we're called to do that in the context of every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. You see, Jesus is not interested in a culturally monolithic church. He wants a multi-ethnic church as Pentecost signified, and folks, he will have that church. Turn with me to Revelation 5. If we look at Revelation 5, we get a glimpse of what the church will look like in heaven as Jesus receives the reward of his suffering. So, At Pentecost, we have the inauguration of the New Testament church. In Revelation, we have the consummation of the New Testament church, what the church looks like in heaven. Jesus receiving his reward. And what is that reward? It is worship. Worship from all nations. So I'm going to pick it up here in verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you, these are the elders and the creatures, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So again, the inauguration of the church signified the multi, multicultural purpose of God's plan. And then we now have this consummation. The Holy Spirit now peels back the curtains of time and space and we get a glimpse into eternity. And it is Jesus Christ being prized and praised and adored from people from world over every single nation. So the resolution of God's story that we see in Revelation 5 further shows that our mission, if we're going to be aligned with God, must be multi-ethnic. It must be a cross-cultural mission. Again, inauguration of the church and now consummation. So beginning and end of the church shows this multi-ethnic purpose of God. So what I'd like to do in our remaining time together before we take communion together, is to try and bring this message home for you and and show how I think it's relevant for RMC. So I'm going to mention a few points of how I think this message is relevant for you and your context and what God is doing presently. First point is this, the power promised by Jesus in Acts 1-8 is an extraordinary power. I think that the experience promise here, folks, is beyond the power of the Spirit given at new birth. Now, don't misunderstand me. When we trust in Jesus, when we put our faith in Him and take Him as our salvation and our treasure, the Spirit of God comes to indwell us. In fact, Paul told the Ephesians that when you heard the good news, you believed and you received the promise... Holy Spirit, who is a deposit that guarantees your inheritance. It's your down payment that guarantees your inheritance when you trust in Jesus. But consider the effects that are shown here in Acts 2 and throughout the book of Acts, and frankly, throughout church history. Extraordinary effects in Acts 2. It says they were clothed with power. It was power from on high. So I believe that this outpouring that we see here in Acts is an extraordinary power. Second thing, the promise that 
the disciples would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them. And Acts 1.8, I believe, was a promise given to sustain the completion of the Great Commission primarily. And, and all you have to do is look at Acts 1.8 to get this. The context of Acts 1.8 makes it plain. Wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. So I believe that the Holy Spirit's power here was given not only for but primarily for the sustaining of the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. Third point, the task of world missions is not yet complete. You saw that on the video. Almost 3 billion souls from about 7,000 people groups with little or no access to the gospel. So the mandate that Jesus gave is not yet complete. We know that there are many nations that still need the gospel, which I believe it means this for us. This promise of extraordinary power to sustain and carry forth the work of the Great Commission is still valid for us today. Do you believe that? History teaches us, not only this history that we read about in the book of Acts, but even throughout the annals of church history from this point, that extraordinary gospel breakthroughs have come because of periodic extraordinary outpourings of the Holy Spirit. There's a book that, that staff here is reading right now uh, written by Greg Laurie. Help me out, somebody. Jesus Revolution. I think you can buy it here at the church, do you, right? Is that right? I saw a sign for it. Anyway, Jesus Revolution. But it documents this that we're talking about. An extraordinary, unusual outpouring of the Spirit of God that led to tremendous harvest in the Jesus movement. Well, it's been happening since Acts 2. Periodic seasons of special blessing from God to move us into harvest, neighbors and nations. Jonathan Edwards, the leader of the Great Awakening 200 years ago in this country, he, he was a, a spokesman of this incredible outpouring of the Spirit, kind of like the Jesus movement of that era, okay? Here's what he writes. From the fall of man to our day, the work of redemption, in its effect, has mainly been carried on by remarkable, extraordinary communications of the Spirit of God. Though there is a more constant influence of God's Spirit always, in some degree attending His ordinances, yet the way in which the greatest things have been done towards carrying on this work always have been by remarkable effusions outpourings at special seasons of mercy. So Edwards believed that from time to time, God the Spirit moved in extraordinary ways in the history of the Christian movement to bring in a great harvest. He moved in uncustomary, dramatic ways. And we call these times and seasons times of revival or awakening or, or maybe Reformation and Pentecost that we read about tonight was the first of these great outpourings on the Christian church. And I believe that until the task of world missions is completed, we should be praying for fresh seasons of God's extraordinary outpouring, of the Spirit descending upon us to awaken us and empower us to penetrate our neighborhoods but also to take the gospel to the nations who are sitting in darkness and the shadow of death until we penetrate the final frontiers of world missions, folks. I believe that this promise is for us. So here's my thought. Let us not come to this text tonight with just some mere academic interest. What, what can we learn but let's come to this text tonight with this idea 
But the promise remains for us. This is not just studying some distant, unrepeatable event. I believe we have much to gain from studying this because, again, there are many peoples that are still waiting to hear. And so we should plead with God for a fresh effusion of His Spirit. I mentioned that we should grab that word suddenly and then come back to it. Let's do that right now. It says, suddenly, the Spirit of God descended upon His disciples. And the reason I want to draw your attention to this word suddenly is to show something that I think is really important, and that is that the Spirit of God is free and sovereign. He is God of very God. He does what He pleases, and He does it when He pleases. He is not bound, folks, by our timing Sean and I talked about this today. He's not bound by our techniques for how to get his power. He moves suddenly. But one thing I want to note is that when we see him moving here in the book of Acts, throughout those first few centuries of the church, and even throughout the history of the church that started here, one thing is clear when we see him pouring himself out, visiting his people in extraordinary ways, his people are praying. There is this mysterious and wonderful correlation between his presence, the presence of the Spirit of God and his people's prayers. I don't understand it, but we see this corollary. And so what does this mean for RMC right now in this time, in this season? I think it means that if we want to see an extraordinary outpouring of the Spirit that will mobilize us, it'll move us out of the building, into the streets, into the dark neighborhoods, into the inner cities, and into the nations that we should be praying God, we need a visitation. We don't want to read about the Jesus movement as just something that happened in the past. We want to see it again. Isaiah, in chapter 64, verses 1 and 3, he prays this amazing prayer, and, and it's something I was praying today for our MC and for myself. The prophet recounts the, the visitation of God at Mount Sinai when his glory showed up in an extreme way. And his prayer is this, O oh God, that you would burst forth from the skies and come down. How the mountains would quake in your presence. The consuming fire of your glory would burn down the forests and boil the oceans dry then your enemies would learn the reason for your fame and the nations would tremble before you so it was before when you came down and you did awesome things beyond our highest expectations and how the mountains quaked oh god that you would burst forth from the skies and come down in a new and extraordinary way on RMC. That you would move us, your people, into harvest, into our neighborhoods, and even to the ends of the earth for the sake of your glory, God. So in a moment, we're going to uh, come to the communion table together before we do that, I, I want to draw your attention one more time to that Revelation 5 passage that we looked at. Again, the consummation of the church. What does the church look like in all her fullness? Jesus is worshipped with these words, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain.
And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. At the consummation of the church, folks, Jesus is worshiped with these words, by your blood, you ransomed for God people from world over from every one of those 17,000 people groups. Do you know when you get to heaven, there'll be representatives from every one of those groups in the presence of God? Every one of those groups will have worshiping representatives. You see, the blood of Jesus, folks, we have to get this. It wasn't shed just to purchase us. It was shed to purchase a multi-ethnic church. A church made up of representatives from all nations, all tribes, all tongues. We remember the blood when we come to the table. And we think about what the the blood of Jesus purchased for us. And we should. It purchased our forgiveness. It purchased our sanctification, our justification. It purchased a place in heaven. We should come to the table and enjoy that and rejoice in that. But when we come to this table, I think we should have Revelation 5 in mind as well. Jesus, this blood wasn't just shed for me. It was shed for the worldwide church. I worked at the church in Philadelphia several years ago, a Calvary Chapel, Calvary Chapel of Philadelphia, and took them through a process similar to the one that I took your church through many years ago. And this church ended up with a few areas of global focus and strategy, much like you. And one of their areas of focus, or one of their people group focuses, is the Tatahumata people. Now, that name rings a bell for you, because it is one of your areas of focus. They're working in a different region, but the same people group focus. And Calvary Philly has been engaged with this group for a long time. They funded Bible translation. They sent out missionaries like you. Well, long story short, I was there a few years after they had launched their global vision. And there was a church service that we were celebrating together the Lord's table, much like you're going to do this evening. And Pastor Gil Trusty, one of the pastors, after the elements had been passed out, so they passed them out, unlike you guys who come and get them yourself, but they'd passed them all out. And Gil said, I want you all to hold on to the elements and I would like you to take together. And so everyone had their elements in hand and he walked them through some prayer of, you know, thanking God for what the table means, acceptance, a new start, all those things. And he said, but before you take, I want to draw your attention to something. He said, I want you to notice the remaining bread and the leftover cups filled with juice representing the blood of Jesus. And he said, I want those remaining cups and bread to be a symbol to us of the Tadahumata people who do not yet feast at this table, but they will. As we as a body of Christ pursue what Jesus bled to obtain, they will feast at this table and one day they will be with us at the wedding supper of the Lamb. He said, reservations have been made, but invitations still need to be sent. So as you take tonight, I want to offer that same challenge. This has, by the way, forever changed the way I approach this table. I rejoice in all that God has done for me. I'm his kid and I, oh my God, he saved us. Be amazed at forgiveness. But remember, there's many that don't know that forgiveness. And, And take a look tonight. After you take, think of that which will remain and let it be a symbol for you of your neighbors here who don't come to this table. They need an invitation from you to Christ. And think about the nations you're engaging, the Tadahumata, the Quechua, the Tepewan. I hope I'm getting that right. God is calling you as a body, and that's part of your vision Think of them and pray for them and pray that the Lamb of God would receive the reward of his suffering. Worshippers from your neighborhoods, worshipers from the nations. Amen?
Let me pray. Father, Spirit, we ask for a fresh and extraordinary outpouring upon this body. Spirit of God, you are free, you are sovereign, you do what you want when you want. You always magnify Jesus. And when you come, God, you come to mobilize us for harvest. And so for the sake of Jesus' glory, we pray that you would descend upon this church in a new way. We pray for a season of mercy and grace that is evidenced by just your glory falling on these, your people. And God, we pray even that there would be such an awareness of your presence that like those early accounts that we could just do nothing but sit still. That your presence would be so tangible that it would move us to repentance. It would move us to confession. It would move us to let go of those things that are holding us back in our relationship with you. And God, it would move us into the highways and the byways of Colorado Springs that we would have boldness and courage to proclaim the gospel here in this city. But it wouldn't stop there, God. We wouldn't leave off the object. But we would be people mobilized to reach the nations, the Tadahumada, the Quechua, the Tepewan, and others, God, that you call this church to engage. Would you do that for the sake of your son's name and renown? And even as we take tonight and we see those remaining cups and the remaining bread, let them be a symbol, God, of what your blood was shed to obtain. And may we pursue that. May we pursue that. So fall on us, God, please. In Jesus' name we pray.